episode 45 of the Shock Jock Knicks podcast on the Posting and Toasting Podcast Network. Sean St. Jacques back here with you for another week of Knicks and NBA talk. Uh, let's see, we're, we're going to dive into some definitely some Knicks stuff, an anniversary, at least on the day of recording that I want to at least acknowledge um, as well. Uh, we'll dive into a little bit about the Knicks, as far as some rumors, as far as the draft certainly is being concerned as well. And we'll also maybe dive into a little bit about the NBA season, but we'll certainly dive into some Knicks history. We'll dive into some Knicks rumors and we'll dive into a few other things as well towards the end of the show. But first, we've got all the, I almost jumped the gun on the music there. It just snuck up on me right there it's the book club the book club is back this week this week it is of course five and six episodes five and six of the last dance i mean every time that music plays i get excited hope you do as well and hopefully you watch the episodes in this third week in a row that we're diving into the documentary on the bulls and for those that are new to the show for those that are catching up a little late on the book club huge spoiler alert so if you have not watched any of the first six episodes of the last dance uh skip ahead in the podcast i will probably spend the first 20 minutes of the show on this so skip ahead to around where we take our break around the 20 or so minute mark and then we will dive into nick's news in the second half of the show a lot to unpack this week from the last dance Last week, it was all Rodman. It felt like Rodman Rodman really took over uh, the book club last week as he took over the last dance. Uh, a lot of fun diving into his part in the story. We learned a little bit about Phil Jackson last week, a lot about Phil Jackson, really the coach from his early days as well. Um, tough start, obviously, to this week's two episodes with the tribute to, to Kobe Bryant. I know a lot of people including myself, we're not sure how that was going to go, how uh, just emotionally how I was going to handle it. Uh, I thought it was a solid tribute. It felt short uh, to me. Uh, I know the documentary is obviously not about Kobe. His day uh, in documentarianism, uh, his, his documentary will come. There will be plenty of documentaries uh, adding on to what's already been made about Kobe Bryant. Those days will come, but I was a little disappointed. I thought it was going to be a little bit longer than it was, uh, but it was a great tribute. You know, they went back to the the All Star Game in 1998. The interactions between Kobe and Michael, the trash talking going on uh, between the two of them, and uh, it was very, very exciting uh, to see that again. Uh, it's been a while uh, since I've really seen any footage of that, and uh, you know, I I think like a lot of people, I was kind of going back to not only Michael Jordan's eulogy for Kobe, but just the different moments throughout the career, towards the end of Jordan's career, really, even when he was with the Wizards, the couple of moments that Kobe and Jordan had on the court together, you know, and that was one of them. Those were the moments I was thinking of as the first few minutes of the documentary in episode five went by. Really special in the end. It was a special moment, uh, despite it being, in my opinion, a little bit short, but I, I you know, we enjoyed, I enjoyed every minute of it, to be honest with you. Um, and it was a great way to open up this week's two episodes. Again, I wish there was a little bit more in there on Kobe, um, but I but I enjoyed what we got. So I was happy to see that. 
at the beginning of the episode and kind of, you know, I was part of me was like, when are we going to see this in the documentary? Like, I was kind of like, is this going to get snuck up on us? You know, that kind of a thing, but they got it, they got it done really quick. So I was kind of happy about that. It kind of, you know, allowed me to enjoy the rest of the documentary, getting that out of the way. So maybe that was kind of the way they did that in knowing what, what, what has happened and how recent it's happened with Kobe and his daughter. Um, they were probably, maybe they were thinking they would be smart to think this, uh, let's get that out of the way early and then let's dive right back into the, the important, uh, the more important storylines with the Jordan stuff, but also, you know, uh, I think for the people that really cared about Kobe and his career, uh, kind of get us back on track a little bit after those opening few minutes. Then we dive into really how the persona off the court of Michael Jordan is conceived, really. And I, I just... For those that, you know, have been following basketball for a while, and obviously many of you uh, are likely older than I am that have seen this stuff, for, you know, firsthand as you were coming up in the game or even earlier than that, um, the Jordan commercials, you know, uh, and, you know, they get the David Falk perspective on this Jordan's agent who goes through the marketing strategy, basically, and how Jordan almost ended up with, uh, I believe, Reebok. He wanted Adidas. And in the end, he goes with Nike. And basically, uh, I think NBC Sports Chicago had the quote. Um, here's the quote. Quote, Nike's expectations when we signed the deal was at the end of year four, they hoped to sell three millions worth of his shoes, Falk said. In year one, they sold $126 million. So the deal was, was working right away. But it was interesting to, to kind of see, you know, Nike, where Nike was at that time, where basically they were just kind of a running shoe company. They weren't really in the basketball world. You know, Adidas had kind of made the shoes that Michael liked. He wanted Adidas, but the deal really wasn't there for what they were looking for, at least what his agent was looking for, what he thought they could get. You know, the making of Air Jordan, the name Air Jordan, you know, the, the, the technology that Nike had at the time, and, and it was kind of around this air, I guess, foam technology or something. And then they're just like, all right, Air Jordan. And that's kind of how the name came about. And his airness, uh, you know, kind of comes after that in a way, if you kind of connect the dots on that one. But, you know, Jordan wasn't thrilled about signing with Nike and considering the fact that, you know, his shoe is iconic. For those that are uh, sneakerheads, more sneakerheads, I'm sure, than I am, although I do like uh, collecting shoes to a certain extent. It gets very expensive after a while, but, um, you know, the Air Jordan 1s, the, the red, white, and blacks, I mean, there is, it's, it's art in basketball. It's, it's like, it's iconic. You know, if you're, if you own a pair of original Air Jordans, they're probably worth tens of thousands of dollars, but it's one of those things where, you know, these are, these are the iconic shoes that people still buy today. So it's, it's incredible that, we get to see the the kind of the start of that, and then the the Spike Lee side of it, uh, the the No Mars commercial. <laughs> it's got to be the shoes. Uh, seeing that, the little bit of the behind the scenes of how that came together. I was hoping we'd see stuff like that when the documentary was first announced, and we got a little bit of that throughout the. I believe that was more episode five. So I was like really excited to see that play. That's one of my favorite commercials of all time. Uh, in the sports world, it was it's so well done at the time, and uh, you know, obviously, Spike Lee's iconic role of Mars. Uh, it's it's really funny how it all kind of came together at that time, and Spike Lee's influence even there is really fun 
to kind of take, I mean, Mars Blackman, I mean, you know, going back to that role from She's Gotta Have It, I mean, it's an, it's another iconic movie that, I mean, Do the Right Thing is certainly there, you know, obviously Black Klan's more of a recent one that I, I think is, you know, and I could go down as an iconic movie in Spike Lee's arsenal as well, but, you know, She's Gotta Have It was the, the, not the influence behind maybe the commercial, but the character Mars Blackman really sets that commercial uh, and brings it to light. And I really enjoyed how that all kind of came together. And it's got to be the shoes was probably my favorite part of the fifth episode. And then we kind of get into the dream team stuff. And the dream team stuff was kind of how, in a way, we left off in the grand scheme from last week because of the, the, the Jordan Isaiah beef we kind of got a teaser for that last week. It kind of boils over to where we know the beef to be today. And the whole, you know, Isaiah, why wasn't Isaiah on the team? You know, why did, in the end, I believe it was um, John Stockton, who, you know, again, all-time assist leaders, an NBA legend, but John Stockton gets the spot over Isaiah Thomas, and many thought that Isaiah deserved that spot and NBA TV for those that don't you know that haven't fully dove into the dream team side of it I have a great documentary on the dream team where a lot of this footage comes from so I'm, I, I'm excited to I, I've seen that documentary it's great it's a great one so again kind of like I've said the first two uh, first two book club sessions we've kind of done with this podcast it's a great go back and watch it because it really helps fill in some of the the dots or fill in some of the blanks with this documentary than in, in the grand scheme of the last dance. But, you know, Isaiah Thomas not getting to go to Barcelona with the 92 dream team, you know, did Jordan make the call there? You know, did, you know, did Chuck Daly make the call? You know, who made the call was kind of how it was brought up. And Jordan, you know, basically took no blame at all. <laughs> Um, but Michael Wilbon said something interesting in the documentary that kind of became a little bit of a controversy uh, after the documentary was released. He basically said that it wasn't just Michael who didn't want um, that didn't want Isaiah on the team, but it was a number of players on the team. And he came out and actually said that that wasn't true. He got a number of texts and things like that. I think he even said it on PTI potentially. I'd have to check on that one, but. He kind of came out, and it, at the time it made a little bit of sense, but when he walked it back on Twitter, it, it kind of reopened the door where it was like, okay, was this just Jordan? Was it not Jordan? You know, what happened here? And the fact that, you know, Mike Wilbon has to come out and defend himself, and that makes it, all right, was it just Jordan? Nobody else was back in this, you know, who was pulling the strings here? And why didn't Isaiah Thomas make it? Was it because of his image? Was it because he was the face of the bad boys or one of the faces of the bad boy Pistons? Um, tough to tell. We don't really get an answer to that. But the intrigue is entertaining enough uh, from that perspective to last. I think a, you know we could make a whole other documentary on Jordan versus Isaiah. But for the time being... Uh, we'll stick with this epic doc on the last dance. Uh, b- by the way, before I move on, the Tony Kukoc part of the Dream Team segment that gets brought in arguably is even more interesting 
than uh, it, it's arguably the most interesting part of the documentary so far. I really enjoyed the you know the the Tony Kukoc side. He's been the one you know for somebody that's followed this since I've been able to obviously watch a lot of documentaries on the Dream Team and things like that. This is kind of the first time you get to hear Tony Kukoc's side on camera of what he thought about not only the first game, the opening game between the U.S. and Croatia, but the gold medal game as well, and kind of him being taken off guard, how hard Jordan and Pippen were playing specifically against him. He had no idea what was going on. That was insinuated, obviously. Other people have said that, but to hear that from him, how blindsided he was, and then from other people kind of hearing, you know, How's he going to bounce back from this? You know, because Jordan and Scotty, I mean, put him in a blender in that first game. He, he, I think they said he had four points in the first game between the U.S. and Croatia. And remember, the whole reason they went after him is because Jerry Krause thought that, you know, Tony Kukoc was, could be the next Scotty Pippen. They were going to, you know, possibly move on from Scotty. And Tony Kukoc was going to be the guy. And of course, Tony Kukoc finds his way into the Bulls uh, franchise and, be, and has his place now in Bulls lore and, and, and is a champion and uh, and things like that. But it was just so interesting how Jordan and Scotty kind of almost inducted him into the Bulls in the NBA without knowing it. They were trying to shut this guy down, but Coach in the gold medal game, I think he has 16 points and seven rebounds. He kind of plays really well in the game. I think they even kind of alluded to, you know, a few people talking about him in the locker room after the U.S. win the gold medal and essentially, you know, just kind of look at each other like, oh, oh, crap, man. You know, he can actually play like he played pretty well and we kicked Croatia's butt. So it shows you what kind of player and kind of person Tony Kukoc was and still is uh, as a player and off the court as well. It just shows you his mental space and how strong he is mentally to bounce back from that. And of course, that I'm sure helps when he ends up arriving to the Bulls. And of course, going through the rest of that time together when they continue to win championships. And Tony Kukoc kind of exists with Jordan. And more importantly, because uh, he was the player he was compared to, Scottie Pippen. So that was really interesting. And then this, really quick, the small side note here that was really interesting was the feud between, I guess it would be... Would it be the NBA or USA Basketball? Whatever the case would be. Jordan wearing the American flag over the... I think it was the Reebok logo during the gold medal ceremony. That, you know, I got kind of hammer home where he was brand-wise. That was fascinating. Very fascinating to hear that side of the story as well. I'm surprised, you know, reading through some of the reactions earlier this week. Um, disappointed nobody else really dove in. I thought that was fascinating. No one else really reacted to that. I was a little like on Twitter, I'm looking through different reacts. I'm like, no one's talking about that. Like that was really interesting and nobody really brought that up. So I don't know, maybe it was just me. I thought I thought Michael Jordan having to wear the American flag and people, oh, he's a patriot. Eh. There was a little bit more to that. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. And then the competitiveness of Jordan, you know, talking about the gambling and we'll get to that in a second. You know, the, actually we, we could talk about that. In, well, we'll talk about that in a second because the gambling problem doesn't come up until Sam Smith's book comes out. That's really where this whole thing starts. And then we, it kind of dives into the gambling. You know, as a Nick fan, the 93 Eastern Conference Finals is tough to watch. I've watched it before. 
but it's even tougher to watch a documentary because the Knicks go up to nothing. You know, John Starks has the dunk over Jordan and, and, and Horace Grant and basically dunks over the entire city of Chicago in game two. They win game two. And, you know, you're thinking, man, I remember after game two, I'm thinking, man, the Knicks lost this series. Oh, just devastating, you know, and it didn't win another game in the series. That was more frustrating. The Knicks easily could have forced a game seven at some point along the line, bare minimum, if not had won the series. And then, you know, Jordan pulls it out in the end, but not without controversy. The Jordan Rules book with the gambling problems, the trip to Atlantic City on the eve of game two of the Eastern Conference Finals, um, and basically the interviews, the fact that he keeps getting talked about with it, um, how much pressure gets put on him from outside of it. And, and again, at one point, you know, Jordan says, you know, I'm not talking to the media anymore. And then Ahmed Rashad gets the exclusive interview with Jordan wearing the sunglasses. (laughs) Oh man, crazy stuff to look back at that. That was incredible. And and it didn't, it didn't end up mattering. The Bulls still won the series and they went on and it turned into a great finals, uh, to be fair. We get to see a really strong Phoenix Suns team led by, I mean, one of the all-time great players, Charles Barkley. And we really get to see, I mean, for those that don't, you know, for, for those like me that didn't see Charles play, uh, you know, when he was in his prime, we just seen highlights of Charles Barkley. This is a big reminder that the ins, there's a reason he's on Inside the NBA and he's a top analyst because he could play. I mean, holy smokes. The, the numbers that he was putting up in those games against Michael Jordan. Again, they're not going one-on-one a lot of times, but the the numbers are outrageous. And what do you have a 46 and 20 rebound game or he's just throwing out incredible numbers. And you're just like, my jaw was dropping. I'm like, and they lost like, it's just, just incredible. But, but Charles gives his nod to Michael and um, you know, again, you know, out of the teams he's played so far, Jordan, the finals, you know, Magic is still Magic when they play. That That's still the Laker team, but it was towards the end of that Magic run with Magic Johnson, if you will, with the Lakers. Clyde Drexler and the Portland Trailblazers, I mean, that's a huge name to get over the top of, but, you know, Jordan, you know, didn't really see him as an equal. He was kind of more of a, um, a great player, but not exactly on a great team. And, and, Jordan and the Bull, it was six games, and that was that kind of got swept under the rug. That series went six games. It wasn't exactly that they swept them. That went, it went six, but, you know, in the end, Jordan's team took it. The, the Phoenix series was really the first test all the way through because of how good Charles Barkley was and that Phoenix Suns team was at the time, and easily could have gone seven games. That, that series easily could have gone seven easily could have been a Phoenix Suns championship, but it's it's Jordan for a lot of that sixth game in Phoenix, and then in the end, it's John Paxton, one of the role players on the team who barely shot the ball in the series, who knocks down the game-winning three in game six. It's a legendary moment in NBA history, and the Bulls lift the third Jordan championship to the Rafters in Phoenix. That was a crazy game. Again, it looks like Phoenix is going to pull it off. Looks like they're going to win it, and they're going to send it to a Game 7, and then John Paxton wins the title with, I think, three seconds to go. 
and it's just incredible. I mean, it's a game that doesn't get talked about enough, I think, in this Jordan run. I mean, it's a classic NBA game, and it's in the finals. For some reason, it seems to get lost over some of the other... It's an epic game, but again, give all the credit in the world to the Bulls. They pull it out, and I feel like I'm talking about it right after the game. But it, it was that was an epic game. I think I think that's something I learned from the documentary, or was reintroduced to in the documentary, how epic of a series that was between Michael and Charles Barkley. I mean, oh my goodness. And it, one of the other things I, I at the end of episode six, one of the thing, one of the other thoughts I had was, man, I just it, I feel so bad for Patrick Ewing and Charles Barkley. I mean, they should have rings on their fingers. And it just, they both, they both just end up coming up short. It's even more agonizing for Patrick because even, you know, 94, they get to the finals and they just can't get it done against Houston in game seven. Now, to be fair, you know, you got to go up against Hakeem, but it's not Jordan regardless. But, and Charles, his his son's teams, you know, again, they have a couple of other runs. He has a run with Houston as well towards the end of his career. But that was really his, you can look back, that was one of his best shots as well at winning a title, and they don't get it done. So, I, I feel, I, I, they don't get it done, but I, I feel terrible for for Barkley and, and Ewing. Two, two legends, absolute legends of the game, and deservedly should have rings, but they don't. It's a shame. But we learned about how great, especially Charles Barkley was, uh, during those 90s epic series uh, with the Bulls. Before I kind of dive into the next section of the show, real quick, uh, the last kind of part that ends episode six really dives into Michael Jordan's, um, you know, the end of that 93 team. You know, that that first three-peat, you know, kind of comes to an end. They win it in Phoenix. They've won three in a row. You know, the third team in NBA history ever to win a three, to get to, you know, to get a three P three titles in a row. And I think the only other team since then to do that besides them again, by the way, we're going to get though, but you know, we'll have four episodes to talk about the second three Pete. Uh, but it's that, it's that uh, late nineties, early two thousands Lakers team, the Kobe and Shaq three Pete with the Lakers that uh, for some reason gets swept under the rug in all these debates. Kobe has his own three Pete. Uh, as well. No one talks about it. I don't know why. He was a hell of a player even then on those teams uh, with Shaq and company. But uh, I digress. Really to finish off episode six, uh, it dives into basically all the scrutiny, the pressure, the media stuff that was going on with Michael and the Be Like Mike uh, song is played, I think a lot in episode six of The Last Dance. And the great quote from Tim Hallam, I believe is the uh, public and media relations head, I think with the Bulls, and I wasn't so sure actually who he was tied with, but his quote is great. He says, quote, I wouldn't want to be like Mike. Uh, and then he adds, it's an impossible task, end quote. I, I mean, that gets hammered home at the end, and basically episode seven is kind of, what, what we're going to talk about next week is basically the retirement. I mean, we're basically going to be going right into that, into the baseball side of Michael Jordan's career. Uh, we've only got four episodes left, so it's going to be epic. Seven and eight are going to be insane, and I can't wait for nine and ten as well. Really good stuff. Uh, 
Another great week of the book club. Let me know your guys' thoughts on the documentary, please. I've been getting some good feedback. It seems like you guys enjoyed talking about it. Um, again, if you haven't watched the documentary, uh, please do. I usually watch it on Monday. I usually try to... Um, I don't I don't love watching it live only because I'm doing some other stuff normally on Sunday night. So I'm trying to watch it the day after. And then I kind of... I don't really take notes, but I kind of keep... You know, take a couple mental notes, if you will and dive into that, and then I usually refocus, and then get ready to talk about it on the show, uh, you know, Thursday recording, Friday release, and then I get ready for <laughs> the next two episodes, it's kind of been my routine, let me know what you guys think, and uh, yes, we will be diving into it again next week, alright, that's the end of the book club for this week, we'll take a break, when we come back, it's mixed milestones, it's a mixed NBA news, coming up next on the Shock Shock News Podcast, on the Posting and Posting Podcast Network. Alright, for some reason, um, May 7th is a... This is the day of recording, so you guys are going to hear this on May 8th. But I'm throwing this out there because May 7th is a day of anniversaries for a lot of different things. Um, Not only in the Knicks world... But sports in general, a lot of a lot of crazy cool stuff happened on May seventh. Apparently, I've been seeing anniversaries for different sporting events all day today. Just as an example, it's only a one year anniversary, but I, me, I'm a big Liverpool football club fan. One year anniversary of the of the miracle at Anfield, the the three nil come from behind uh, win four three on aggregate over Barcelona. I've been watching content on that all day today. Is a big Liverpool football club supporter a couple of crazy Knicks anniversaries on May 7th as well good and bad we'll go with the bad one first I believe I got this right because there have been so many I've been seeing it all over the place but this is the anniversary of the Reggie Miller eight point in nine second game back in the 90s and oh a devastating loss for the Knicks at the Garden that crazy game with the bad inbounds play that led to the Basically two threes and then the free throws all in eight seconds. And the Spike Lee, you know, the choking sign from Reggie, the grabbing on the crotch from Reggie. Oh my gosh. I mean, at the heyday of the Knicks-Pacers rivalry, that was kind of the the epic conclusion. Well, not the conclusion, really, because, of course, the LJ four-point play was kind of the, you know, that was kind of towards the end of it, but that was one of the last laughs of it. And then, of course... The most recent was the mellow, uh, the mellow Knicks uh, losing to the Hibbert Pacers, uh, if you will, uh, back in 2013. So, it, it, you know, obviously I'm spreading it out a little bit there, but obviously that was the heyday of it. That at the height of it was that eight point in nine second game at the Garden. It's also in the on the good side of things, fifty a fifty year anniversary of the Willis Reed game, the Knicks' first title, the Willis Reed game at the Garden. Uh, Willis Reed, nineteen seventy NBA Finals, goes on the court in Game Seven, puts on a show just to kind of lift the Knicks up, and in the end, the Knicks went on and won the championship. What a, just an inspirational, uh, inspirational performance by him at the time and on top of that I mean you look at you know great performances in sports history that one's right up there I mean there's just no other way around it it's one of the best sports performances 
ever. It was a thigh injury, I believe, in Game 5 of that NBA Finals. That was kind of the, the precursor to, you know, is Willis going to play for the rest of the Finals? And the Knicks ended up going on and winning the title. Great quotes, by the way, on a New York Post article from Walt Clyde Frazier. I want to read one of them real quick. Quote, uh, this was actually Frazier to the Post last month, I guess in preparation for this moment. He said, quote, we're all shooting around. Will, when Willis came out, everybody stopped. The Lakers stopped. Our, and the Lakers, of course, they were playing the LA Lakers in the finals. The Lakers stopped. Our team stopped. The crowd went berserk. I know I was facing the tunnel. I didn't have to turn around when he came out. I saw him right away. It was so emotional, and the crowd never shut up from that point out. They were only able to sing half the anthem before the crowd drowned it out. I mean, that's just, I mean, early just, you know, you know remember that, the, the, the old 30 for 30, the when the garden was eaten? I mean, that's the epitome of it right there. Um, crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and again, going into that game seven, they didn't know, nobody knew really if Willis Reed was going to play, if he wasn't, if he wasn't going to play, um, you know, Red Holtzman, you know, when they're going through treatments, like keeping everyone out of the, of the treatment room and things like that. And, you know, uh, crazy stuff. Again, there's quotes from Bill Bradley, Dave DeBusher, I think is, uh, gets a shout out in there as well. Uh, Laker coach, John Mullaney, um, has a quote from 50 years ago in the post that's included in there as well. Um, he thought they could take advantage of Willis Reed hobbling. Uh, wasn't the case. Um, and in the end, the Knicks go on and win the title. Um, crazy stuff. Uh, I, just looking back, it's one of the great NBA moments of all time. But it's, all, it's obviously the best Nick moment of all time as well. The Knicks, of course, ended up winning a second championship as well, but of course they haven't won one since. So just epic uh, anniversary there that is worth noting on the podcast, no question about that. All right, before we get out of here, um, one quick note that I forgot to note last segment that I want to bring up this segment that is just odd. And I, I'm going to finish up with some Knicks rumors and, and some stuff like that before we get out of here. Most of it's surrounding, believe it or not, RJ Hampton. I'll tell, tell you a little bit more about him in a second. The book club... Uh, no, 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 don't play the music. Don't play the music. We'll, we'll, save, the full, we'll save the full track uh, for next week. Um, we'll save the full track for next week. I, I know, I want to hear it as much as anybody does, but we're going to save it for next week. Um, the, the, the Michael Jordan interviews were brought up in the Miami Herald this week. And I saw this before I came on, which is probably why I didn't, forgot to mention it when I should have mentioned it, which is at the top of the first segment. But so Michael, you know, a lot of these interviews, most of the times they're done at homes, right? They're normally done at the house, uh, of the person who, you know, is being interviewed is normally how it goes. So when I first read this headline, I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is, you know, Michael Jordan's interviews are done at different locations, right? You could tell that um, when you're going through the documentary. It's not all in one place. It's not all done in one place, but it's clearly done, you would think, in either different rooms of the house or maybe, you know, between different houses that Jordan owns or maybe a different family house 
or something like that. You know, one of the notes the Miami Herald uh, notes is that, you know, from uh, one of the things that Miami Herald notes, I should say, is from the floor to ceiling windows or to the all white furnishings, the decor, um, it kind of accentuates the NBA legend's status as a larger than life figure. That's, that's from the Miami Herald. Great point, right? Like when you see it, you're kind of like, all right, that's a home that Michael Jordan would live in. That's a home that Michael Jordan would like. Like you could see like all of the homes that are used being Michael Jordan's homes. They're not. None of them are. According to the Miami Herald, that all these homes are in Florida. None of them are Michael Jordan's. None of them. Every single one. Uh, there's three of them apparently. Um, this is according to Insider. The news and the features website, Jordan interviews occurred at three houses that are near his home in Jupiter, Florida. The 57-year-old didn't want to show where he actually lived. So there's a great quote, or there's some, there's a quote. I wouldn't know, I don't know, I wouldn't know if it's, I wouldn't say if it's good or great, but the Last Dance director, Jason Iyer, or Hayer, Hayer? Uh, apologies I'm mispronouncing that. But basically, there's certain parts, he says, quote, there's certain parts of his life that he wants to keep private. Apparently, the real home is a 28,000 square foot mansion located inside the Bears Club, which is an exclusive community in Jupiter with a Jack Nicholas designed golf club. The multi-millionaire estate, this is all from uh, the Miami Herald, has 11 bedrooms, and Forbes describes it as a lavish athletic complex complete with a gym and, not surprisingly, a basketball court. The director of The Last Dance also notes, quote, he didn't just want people to see all that. I respected that, so I never pushed back on that. One more quick note. Another quick quote, I should say, from the director of the documentary. Quote, I knew what his real house looked like, and I knew this is a wealthy guy who has certain tastes. So we wanted so we wanted something to match that. So that's how they basically picked out the houses. They wanted houses uh one had an ocean view. They they rented the first house had an ocean view. The first the other two homes rather, the one from the now famous Jordan meme and the one from the lead image belonged to friends of someone in production according to insiders. So they're using properties of people on the staff of the documentary to do these Jordan interviews. So these guys are like, all right, Michael Jordan's in my house right now. <laughs> but Jordan didn't want to do it too far away from his home. But they, they, he also did not want to know where all these, like he didn't want all these people to know where he lived either. Oh, it's just crazy. Just another incredible part of this documentary. One more quote from the director. Uh, quote, you'd be surprised how quickly people will all will open their doors when you say, can Michael Jordan come over and be interviewed at your house? <laughs> so obviously they scouted out more than just the three um, that were ended, that they ended up using in the documentary. Uh, C. Isaiah Smalls II has the article for the Miami Herald. I, I suggest you go read it. It's fantastic diving in further. That'll be the last of our last dance talk this week. But I just thought that is so worth mentioning on the podcast this week because that is just classic Michael Jordan 
um, he gets what he wants kind of stuff that people for some reason love to, to chew on. So uh, I thought I'd note that uh, really quick before we finish up the show. Um, last big thing I want to talk about before we get out of here is basically the Knicks rumors surrounding RJ Hampton. The Knicks are interested. Uh, he's considered under the radar. Apparently RJ Hampton, again, we're talking NBA draft. Um, the backcourt situation, again, RJ Barrett, uh, would be his partner really for the future. That's kind of where, uh, some of this comes from RJ Hampton, RJ Barrett, not because of the names, because of the talent. The New York Post basically says that the Knicks are considering Hampton, if their top pick falls between 6 and 10. So basically, if the Knicks don't get any higher than where they're slotted right now, they're going to consider taking Hampton in the draft. Now, for those that don't know who R.J. Hampton is, um, for example, if you're a big college basketball fan, oh, there's a good reason you don't know who R.J. Hampton is because he didn't play in college. Um, he decided to forego college. Uh, he's been playing pro with the New Zealand Breakers in the NBL. He's 19 years old. He averaged 8.8 points, 3.8 point rebounds, um, and 2.4 assists per game. And he also shot 40% from the field in the 15 games he played with the squad. RJ Hampton's final game in Australia took place on January 11th. Um, and he ends up going to the United States, coming back to the United States in February give himself time to recover currently from a hip injury and get ready for the NBA draft. BR has him as the 12th prospect in the draft. Others have him as high as fifth in the NBA draft as well. Um, my thoughts on RJ Hampton are, are simple um, for two reasons. One, I haven't seen a ton of him. Uh, I've only watched highlights of him online. Seems like a really talented player. Seems like he's a raw guy could have a lot of talent, um, has a high ceiling. He has a lot to work on. I would say, especially on the defensive end, I would say that he's not there yet. I would say offensively, he has a very high ceiling. He can score the ball in multitude of ways. The percentages kind of back that up. He's a good three-point shooter. I don't think he's a great three-point shooter. Not yet, but again, he can become a great three-point shooter. I think that's definitely possible. He's got pretty good court vision, especially for his age. He's 19 years old. He could have easily, he could have easily been a one-and-done college player, but decided to get paid overseas, pretty far overseas as well. New Zealand's a hell of a flight from the United States. Um, for RJ Hampton with the Knicks, for me, I think if, again... If the rumor is true that the Knicks would only consider him 6 through 10, I'd feel a little bit better about that. That makes more sense, is what really what I'm trying to say here. Because he's not a top 5 pick. And you could argue, by the way, with this draft, that he's not a top 10 pick either. But... If you're if the Knicks fall in the draft, let's say the season, you know, they, they don't decide to go because everything's on the table right now. They decide to scrap the rest of the regular season. The Knicks season is is done, and the Knicks right now are slotted with the sixth worst record in the East. The Knicks can obviously go a little higher than six. They can go lower than six. The new draft lottery really opens up a lot of doors there. If the Knicks drop to six through tenth, or they stay at six, or they drop lower to seven through ten. R.J. Hampton is going to be in play. I mean, there's no way around that. I, I, I think that that would have been the case even before this report came out. 
I, I would probably have told you that RJ Hampton is going to be an option. Uh, I'm not a, again, I, I wouldn't take him. I wouldn't want my team in this case, the Knicks to take him either. I think he's a huge risk. Um, right now, you know, I'm looking at, I'm looking at a couple different mock drafts during the show to kind of gauge where everyone's got him going. I mean, I've seen him as high as 10th or a ninth to Washington or Phoenix. Phoenix would be 10th. Washington would be ninth at the moment. I've seen him as low. I think NBA draft.net had him at like 17th to the Celtics. So now again, the Celtics, you know, they're, they're kind of the, you know, Brad Stevens is kind of the Greg Popovich 2.0 when it comes to getting draft picks in and turning them into solid players. Maybe he could work something out with RJ Hampton and get him uh, to the level that everyone thinks he could possibly get to. But for right now, and again, RJ Hampton, I think the best part about him, he's 6'4", he can be a combo guard, he can play the one, or he could play the two. I just worry about you know, do you want a project or do you want a ready-made player? You want someone who's ready to roll right now. Like, in my opinion, as somebody who follows college basketball and tries to keep up with the international players, I don't think R.J. Hampton is a top 10 pick. I don't. I, I think he's probably anywhere from 11th to 15th in this draft. Some have him even lower than that. Again, I mentioned some have him as low as 17th in this draft. I, I think there's too many good players in the top 10 that the Knicks should be looking at where I don't think RJ Hampton kind of fits in. I, I really don't. Um, when you look at the guards though, there's a little bit more of an argument, right? I mean, you look at both guard positions, Anthony Edwards is probably going to go first or second overall, depending on if Golden State would want Obi Toppin or Anthony Edwards, or maybe even LaMelo Ball. But I I, th- I would throw LaMelo Ball after that. I'd probably go James Wiseman and then for me, I think Cole Anthony is probably the fifth guy. I think if the Knicks are at fifth or sixth, I, I think if Cole Anthony's there, you take him. I really do. I, I think he's the he could be the future of this franchise, no question about that. I was talking about uh, talking about that with a buddy of mine earlier this week, and he he kept asking me, he's like, well, what if the Knicks fall? And, and I'm like, listen, that's going to be tough, but Cole Anthony might still be there. I mean, that's the thing. Cole Anthony is a guy. That again, the Knicks could trade up if they really feel strongly about Cole Anthony or somebody else. But for me, for me, if the Knicks fall, you still have a couple of options. You, you really do at the guard position. I don't love all of them. You know, I don't love Killian Hayes. I haven't seen enough of Killian Hayes to go nuts over him. And, and, and the last time the Knicks took a French point guard, uh, hasn't really gone too well. So <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. Tyrese Halliburton is a kid out of Iowa State who is coming off an injury, just like R.J. Hampton is, but has some dy- you know has some dynamism to him. He's very dynamic on the offensive end of the floor. Can shoot the rock probably as well as anybody in the draft from the point guard position, and has the size, 6'5". He's a little bit thin. I'd say 185 is a little thin, but I, he can fill into his body. So Tyrese Halliburton is another option at the point guard position that the Knicks can look at. Uh, again, this one I'm not thrilled about, but Nico Mannion is a player that a lot of player, a lot of teams like at the point guard position. I don't know if the Knicks would be interested in Nico Mannion. Um, I know I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of his game translating to the next level. I would have argued, despite having a solid season at Arizona, that he needed another year of college. But almost every draft board I've seen has him as a top 15 pick. You gotta go. I, I get it. So fair enough to Nico Mannion. He, again, he's a talented player. 
I just, I'm not so sure about him translating to the next level because I worry about his speed and a little bit about his ball handling. Um, and then after that, the guards kind of go get wiped away and you're looking at just talent. Vernon Carey Jr. is certainly a big out of Duke. That's an option. Um, Precious Achua, who's more of a wing player out of Memphis, is an option. And then you're diving a little bit further down. This would be way out of the Knicks range. But then you're looking at a Tyrese Maxey out of Kentucky who could probably go as high as 11th or 12th and as low as 20th in this draft. Where, but he's a but he's a really talented shooting guard that could really be a nice snag for somebody in the first round. A one and done kid out of Kentucky, coached by, of course, John Calipari. And then again, I, I always mention this when we talk draft because everyone wants to know that second pick in the first round is important. It really is because if the Knicks don't get what they want with that first pick. Because right now, I'm looking at NBADraft.net mostly. The Knicks take Cole Anthony at six. If they get Cole Anthony, you're playing with house money now in the first round, in my opinion. You could take another guard, but then you could, you could really open up. You could take a big, you could take a wing player as well. I mean, Sadiq Bey out of Villanova becomes an option. You know? Uh, I, some people have the Knicks taking Aaron Naismith out of Vanderbilt. I don't know if Aaron Naismith's really a player that is going to help the Knicks, especially in the first round, late first round. I look more at either another guard, maybe an Emmanuel quickly out of Kentucky, or maybe a, a, a Jamius Ramsey out of Texas Tech. You know, those are the kind of guys I'd look at. And then if you're looking at wing players, there's really two options for me. Jordan Wara out of Louisville is certainly an option there at 25 where the Knicks are at the moment. Or you're looking at a Tyler Bay possibly out of Colorado, or if you want to dive a little bit into that second round, a couple other guards to look at would be Devon Dotson out of Kansas, a really, really good potential up-and-coming point guard, or you could even look at maybe a Jalen Smith out of Maryland who's working on that three-point shot but has a really good 6'10 frame, 215 pounds. It could be a beast at the next level. He'd be a late first, early second round option for the Knicks. And again, the Knicks have the 38th pick. They've got an early second round pick. You know, Smith could still be there. Dotson could still be there. You're looking at Trey Jones, Malachi Flynn out of San Diego State. Maybe a Peyton Pritchard out of Oregon. Now we're diving a little bit deeper down. Maybe a, a Cassius Stanley, Ashton Hagens, Marcus Howard, Miles Powell, uh, maybe Cassius Winston. So th- there's a lot of guys that kind of come up in that conversation where the Knicks could possibly snag a really good player even in the second round of this draft where, you know, again, the college ranks were really balanced last season despite the season being cut short. There's a lot of good second round options and the Knicks are in three fantastic spots. They've got a top 10 pick, they've got a top 25 pick, and they've got a top 40 pick in a 60 pick draft. They've got three huge chances here for Scott Perry, Leon Rose to kind of keep punching at the door here because there's a huge chance the Knicks could come away with a great haul in the upcoming 2020 NBA draft. Listen, to put a wrap on the show and to put a wrap on this segment, RJ Hampton is a talented player. In my opinion, if even if the Knicks fell to 10, let's say the Knicks fall to 10th in the draft, I don't think he's worth the risk that high in the draft you got to be you got to make sure you nail that first pick because if you don't 
You're going to be trying to make it up for the rest of the draft with the other two picks. You want to nail that first pick and grab a Cole Anthony or somebody like that, or get lucky and get higher, maybe get one of the top three or four picks, and then you're playing with house money the rest of the draft, and you can get whatever the heck you want, because you're just looking for talent at that point. You've got your biggest need checked off the list. Now let's see what else you can get. Try to bolster and improve the roster, because the number one thing, you know, talk, you can talk positions all you want. The number one thing the Knicks need, besides a point guard, because point guard, again, if you check that off the list, now you're playing with house money. The only other thing the Knicks need on the roster is talent. That's it. It almost doesn't matter what the position is right now because the roster is so fluid with contracts and young players. You just need talent. So if you nail the first pick, and by nail it, in my opinion, I think it's Cole Anthony, whether you get high, uh, you know, if you get a top four pick or not. Now, to be fair, if you're getting top four, LaMelo Ball is in play. But Cole Anthony, or you get higher and you're looking at that top four, if you get if one of those two scenarios happens, the Knicks now have house money for the rest of the night, and they've got two more great positions where they can take who they want to really try and bolster the roster with some great young talent. So that's what you got to be hoping for, for if you're a Knicks fan when it comes time to draft. So I'm excited to see what happens. Obviously, we're a little far away right now from that because we don't even know how the season's going to end. So that has to come forward first before we really know how the Knicks are going to do and how the Knicks are going to prepare with Scott Perry, Leon Rose, and company for the upcoming NBA draft. And with that, the show is concluded for this week. Guys, thanks as always for listening to the show, especially during these tough times. We're actually continuing to be strong with our numbers on the podcast. It's because of you guys. You guys are awesome. You guys keep on listening to the show. Thank you so much for doing so. Enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy the last dance on Sunday, and I will see you guys next time on the Shock Shock Knicks podcast on the Posting and Toasting Podcast Network. Stay safe out there, folks.